my greatest fear when I thought I broke my toe was not how will I get about every day, how will I, you know, uh, go to work, how will I do anything. It was how am I going to preach, you know, how am I going to run around. So forgive me if I'm limping just a bit. And forgive me, but I am so happy to tell you that the the two boys that I talk about so much, who I love so much, happen to be able to be here today to hear me speak. They chose not to go to Children's Church to hear Aunt Shelley. Noah and Jake, I love you guys. Okay. Amen. All right. Above the horizon, looking toward divine completion. This is a message that's really important for graduates, but it's important for everybody, whether you're two or 92 years old. We need to, spiritually speaking, be looking above the horizon toward divine completion. We need to fix our eyes on what is eternal rather than what is temporary. How many of you agree with that? So the Bible is all about Now, ironically, as I was getting ready for this message, I discovered that Pepsi's latest logo is, say it with me, live for now. Interesting. Now, if you mean to live for now in terms of seizing every moment for the purposes of Jesus for all it's worth, then I'm all about that. Amen? We should live with passion. But I have a sneaking suspicion that that's not what Pepsi has in mind. Okay, if we're talking about just live for the here and now because this is all you've got, give it your best shot, milk from it everything you can for yourself because this life will be soon be over, that is not a good philosophy to live by. Amen? We should be living for something which is going to outlast this earthly life. And C.S. Lewis made a quote one time. It's an awesome quote. I'm sure you've heard it before, but it goes right in line with what I'm about to say. Aim at heaven and you'll get earth thrown in with it. Aim at earth, and you get nothing, all right? The people who do the most good in the culture, the people who contribute the most to this world, the people who live with the most joy and the most passion are people who are living for something beyond themselves, people who live for eternal things, people who fix their eyes on Jesus Christ, amen? Okay, and that's what this message is about, learning to look above the horizon and focus on what matters. And I want to say to every graduate and every person who is in this room, if you build your life on anything other than Jesus Christ, you can read about it for yourself in the book of 2 Corinthians, but I'm going to tell you, if you build your life on anything other than Jesus Christ, it will eventually come to a very sad end. Amen? I don't care how rich you are, how much you build up in this world, how successful, how famous. You can live your life for experiences in this world and not build it on Jesus Christ. You can be wealthy. You can go after happiness and maybe achieve a lot of happy moments. You can do a lot of things, have a lot of success in this life. But I promise you one thing. If it is not built on Jesus Christ, you and the things that you do, Then at the end of, as Psalm 90.10 says, 70 or 80 or 90 years, when your earthly life is over, all of that success, all of that stuff, all of those experiences, you're going to come to the end of the cliff, the end of this earthly life, and you and everything that you had will be gone. Amen? So picture yourself walking towards the edge of the cliff, and yeah, while you're walking, you may be partying and gaining a lot of things and having a lot of stuff, but if it's not built on Jesus Christ, there is coming a day when you will fall off the edge of the cliff and it will all be over, and it was for nothing. Amen? We need to live for what is above the horizon. We need to live for that which is eternal. Now, 
when I think of the pitiful nature of my life and how often I am distracted and how often I am focused on things that don't really matter, I always get inspired by the Apostle Paul. The Apostle Paul was some kind of guy. He wrote the greatest treatises on joy and encouragement that we have in the world today. How many of you love the book of Philippians? Amen? Paul was a man who lived with passion and with joy. Now, as far as we know, Paul was never married. Paul didn't have children. Paul did not have an easy life. Somebody shout out to me, other than being a missionary and a preacher, which was his main calling, how did Paul support himself to do those things? Anybody know? What did he do for a living? He made tents. Glamorous career. Amen? Okay? He made tents. He lived a life without a family. He made tents to preach the gospel, to travel around, and he tells us in 2 Corinthians chapter 11 what his life was like. Interesting. Five times he received 39 lashes. Three times he was beaten with rods. He was stoned once. He was shipwrecked three times. He spent nights and days out at sea. He was on frequent journeys in danger from rivers, danger from robbers, danger from his countrymen, dangers from strangers and Gentiles, dangers in the city, dangers in the wilderness, dangers on the sea. Among false brethren. He says, I've been in labor. I've been in hardship through many sleepless nights. I've been hungry. I've been thirsty. My body has literally been exposed to the cold. And apart from all those external things that I'm constantly going through, Paul said, I live with the responsibility of all the churches, spiritually speaking. Paul had an easy life, didn't he? No, Paul had a rough life. When I think about I get irritated when I'm walking through, you know, Walmart and the line's too long, I think to myself, yeah, we laugh because we know it's true, right? I think to myself, Shelly, you're, seriously, you're a pitiful creature. You are pitiful. Because the Apostle Paul was a man who, I have books on him, the psychology of Paul, the life of Paul. He was a man who lived with such passion and such joy, but he didn't get it. From this life in this world, did he? He found joy in spending himself and giving it away for something else. For someone, for something greater. As 2 Corinthians 4, 16 through 18 says, this is what Paul told us. He said, therefore, we do not lose heart. Though outwardly we are wasting away, yet inwardly we are being renewed day by day. He said, for our light and momentary troubles are achieving for us an eternal glory that far outweighs them all. And he literally used the word for weight there. That He's wanting us to say there's something weightier, there's something meatier, there's something of substance to living for what's eternal. Now, when Paul says our light and momentary troubles, you might be tempted to say, Paul must have had an easy life. Light and momentary, did he? No. When he talks about light and momentary, he knew real trouble in his life. But he compared it to an eternity with God Almighty. And he said, my mind can't really conceive what eternity is yet. But based on God's word, I'm just believing that what I'm going through is light and momentary. Amen? The worst sickness you ever face, the worst struggle you ever face, the worst relationship trouble you ever face, the worst of anything you could ever face in this world is, according to the Bible, light and momentary compared to the eternal weight of glory. And I'm going to get you excited this morning about heaven. Who wants to get excited about heaven? Okay? All right. I'm going to get you excited this morning about heaven, I think. 
Okay, so that's what Paul said. He said, so we fix our eyes not on what we can see, but on what we can't see, because what we can see is only temporary, and what we can't see is actually eternal. And that's what he calls us to do, what God is calling us to do in every situation. Now I come to one of the main texts for the message, which is uh, 2 Corinthians chapter, or 1 Corinthians chapter 13. Now a lot of people know this as the what chapter? The love chapter. Okay? Love is patient. Love is kind. Very important text. But a lot of people don't pay attention to the verse that immediately follows, love never fails. In 1 Corinthians 13, beginning at verse 9, Paul makes a very interesting statement here. And he says, For now, in this life, we know in part and we prophesy in part. Now, please repeat with me. Delight me if you would. Just make me happy. What is the two-word phrase that's repeated in that verse? What do we do right now? We know what? In part. Okay, now we only know in part. Paul says, but when the perfect comes, when Jesus finally comes back, when the perfect comes, the partial will be done away. When I was a child, I used to speak like a child, think like a child, reason like a child. But when I became a man, I did away with childish things. For now we see in a mirror dimly, but then face to face. Now I know, what does it say? In part, but then I will know fully just as I also have been fully known. Now, I want you to take a deep look at this. I want you to think with me. Now, remember, I am by nature a math person. Okay, yeah. Okay, so, but just think deeply with me for a minute. Paul said, right now everything's partial. But there's a day coming when the fullness of everything, when the return of Christ is going to eclipse what is only in part. Now, I want to make a disclaimer before I start. I go around. I have an event that I do. It's three hours long. It's called a heaven event. I teach on heaven. And, and try to dispel the, the, the wrong teachings about it, like sitting on the clouds and playing the harps and standing with your hands up for three million years, you know. Okay, try to dispel all that because I found that our young people don't really want to go there. Okay, but anyway, I digress. So in talking about heaven, this is part of what I, I speak about. Listen, people ask me many times after I teach on heaven, but Shelley, um, if God's going to wipe away all the tears from our eyes, like, are, is he just going to erase every memory of everything bad that ever happened on this earth? I say no. I don't think so. If God wiped away every bad memory and every difficult thing that ever happened to me, there would be about this much of me left. <laughs> okay? I'm going to show you in a minute how what I believe God is going to do is eclipse those. He's going to outshine them by so far. He will show us how they all made sense. He will comfort us and let us see why we had the struggle and what it accomplished and how it all comes together in Jesus Christ. When the perfect comes, the partial is going to disappear. That's why I believe Paul gave the analogy of a child and a man. Now, I'm 43 years old standing in front of you, but there was a time when I was curly-headed, little, annoying Shelley Prindle who talked a mile a minute. I don't talk that much anymore. Okay, but anyways, I used to talk a lot, and, and there was a time when my mom used to hold me in her arms, and the only thing I could say was goo goo gaga. Okay? Believe it or not. And there was a time when I didn't know I shouldn't run out into heavy traffic. But everything that I went through as a child didn't disappear when I became Shelley Prindle of 43 years old, right? 
Who I am today is all those things into one, but absorbed by the greater picture of who I am. Are you with me? So I believe when we get to heaven, it's not that everything's going to disappear. We won't have any memories. It's that they will all finally make sense. They will all finally come together into the greater picture. So Paul says, look, we only know in part right now. It doesn't really even all make sense right now. And if you're a very good student, you remember that the first sermon I ever preached here at Norwin Alliance, I spoke from Isaiah chapter 25. And 700 years before Jesus ever came to this earth, Isaiah prophesied and he said, there's coming a day when Jesus is going to swallow up death for all time. And in that same chapter, he says, he's going to remove the covering which is over all peoples. And I believe he's referring to what Paul is saying here. There's coming a day when I won't see through a mirror dimly anymore. Back in Paul's day, mirrors were not as good as they are today even. And, and he's saying, look, it's kind of, it doesn't completely make sense. I'm not seeing the whole picture. It's kind of fuzzy to us now. Amen? How many of you ever think life is kind of fuzzy? God, what in the world are you doing? Okay? The promise is that there's a day coming when Shelley Prindle is going to know the way that God knows me now. He looks at my life and he's like, Shelley, if you could just trust and have faith, I got the whole thing worked out. When I get to heaven, I'm going to see how he had the whole thing worked out. When I get to heaven, the partial nature of the things that I've suffered and, and the disease that I've struggled with, that's all going to somehow come together and it's going to make sense. That's our hope. But I want to promise you, graduates and everybody else in the room who's struggling with this, you will never be fully satisfied in this world out of the presence of Jesus Christ. Don't go for success. A lot of you are you're pursuing wonderful and great goals. Don't count on it. Amen? Listen, I want to give you an example, if I could, of how uh, in this world everything is partial. Everything. I want you to think one of the most pivotal things that we in our American culture looks forward to is Christmas morning. Amen? Do people prepare for months for Christmas morning? Do we spend hundreds and thousands of dollars for one single morning? It happens in about an hour if you have young children in four and a half minutes, all right? And it's all, it's all, it's all over. Okay, but we build up to this. We spend hundreds and thousands of dollars. We spend months. You got, the, you got the lights outside. You got the tree inside. You're buying presents. You're getting the meal ready. You're inviting people over. And we build up to this climax moment of Christmas morning. And supposedly it is supposed to be one of the greatest moments in life, you know. You build up to it, you get there, Christmas morning comes. Now listen, even on a perfect Christmas morning, all your families come in, the hot chocolates, you know, you got the smell of hot chocolate in the house, the presents are under the tree, the kids are all excited, you're all ready to rip into stuff. Who would agree with me that that's supposed to be a perfect moment? It's only partial. Something as simple as a headache or a cold virus, or a bout with arthritis can steal away from the joy of Christmas morning. Amen? The present struggles that you go through can come in and take what should be fullness of joy and steal from it, and now it's only partially satisfying. Or you have Christmas morning, everything's ready to go, it's supposed to be a perfect moment, and you are sitting there watching everybody else, and the past comes rushing in to steal from the moment. And you start thinking about who used to be there on Christmas morning. What it used to be like when you were younger, when you felt better, when life had hope. Amen? 
And suddenly the moment that you're supposed to be totally enjoying becomes only partial. Or you're on Christmas morning and everybody's doing their thing and you're just kind of staring and looking on because the future has come to rush in to steal from the present. And as your kids are opening the presents, you're thinking, I don't even have the money to pay for those presents I bought. I I have to tell my wife that I believe a layoff is in view. I wonder how that medical test is going to turn out that I have to have next month. Amen? And what should be the perfect moment is only what? Partial. I love the Word of God. I think it's so much deeper than we ever make it to be. And I believe when Paul said, when the perfect comes, the partial will be done away, is one of the most beautiful scriptures in the Bible. Now, I personally can testify the partial nature, and I want to use this as an example because I want our graduates to hear this. Everything in this life is fleeting, and unless you build it on Jesus Christ, it will not satisfy you. Will not. And even when you are a Christian, this life does not contain fullness of joy. Amen? How many adults will say amen? Don't look to this life. Look to Jesus. I remember about six years ago, um, God laid it on my heart, and Jeff was in agreement that I needed to go back to grad school and earn my master's degree. Degree in math and was teaching math and Bible, had been for about 11 years. God laid it on my heart, you got to go back to grad school, so I did. And I started taking, while teaching full-time in Christian schools, started taking seven-week courses through Crown College back-to-back. Seven-week class, two days off, seven-week class. Did that for two years solid. It was exhausting. It was so exhausting that Karen Fulton, who was only working part-time back then, would come and clean my house on Fridays. Yeah. Did I tell you I'm back in grad school? Okay, so anyway, um, <laughs> I'm just kidding. Now she's working full-time, and I should be cleaning her house. So anyway, um, it was it was really rough. And I remember going through that. It was a big sacrifice, but I knew God had called me to do it, and I did it. And as my final project, they wanted me to do a strategic planning project, and the Lord impressed on my heart, Shelly, you've been preaching my word since you were 15 years old. I want you to found the ministry. I want you to... become a 501c3 corporation and launch your ministry formally into motion. And that was only five short years ago, and God has, you know, it's blown exponentially, but that was what he laid on my heart, so I did. So at the same time, right around then, the school that I was teaching at came to me and said, we want you to move from teacher to principal. We want you to take over this school from pre-K through 12th grade. I was like... I'm not even 40 years old, and I'm I'm about done with my master's degree. I founded a ministry that's taken off, and now I'm the principal of a Christian school. This is incredible. And I remember finishing my master's thesis. I was on top of the world, okay? I worked so hard, and I was typing the last few words of my master's thesis on my laptop in my home office, breeze blowing through the window, and I was like, yes. And I remember typing the last few words. Jeff was out of town, and here I am all by myself, finished the thesis, and I'm just, I'm a little rambunctious, you know what I mean? I like to celebrate. So I ran down to my parents' house down the road. They happened to be sitting out on the porch. I ran down the road screaming and hollering. I don't even think I had shoes or socks on. I was like, I did it, and I'm jumping up and down my fist in the air. I'm like, I'm done. I finished. I got my master's degree. I'm going to be principal of this school. I got my ministry. I'm like, yes, I'm so excited. I remember I was yelling 
and screaming. I ran back up the road, and I went into my living room. I have a big window in my living room. Sun was shining through. Breeze was coming in. I stood in the middle of the living room all by myself, fists up in the air again. I'm like, yes, I can't believe this. I will never forget that moment and what happened in the next 10 seconds. My fists lowered to my sides. I looked out the window, and this is what I said. What next? Have you ever done that? Okay, I did it. Now what? And I found that life goes on. And I found that nothing that we do in and of ourselves is the meaning of what we're doing. Amen? Graduates Remember that. Everything in this life is partial. And the greatest success that you can have and the best moments that you can have are only partial in this life. And that is why Paul said, look to when the perfect comes. Because when the perfect comes, the partial will be done away. He said, David said, a thousand years before Paul ever lived, David said, you will make known to me the path of life. In your presence is what? Say the word. Fullness of joy. In your right hand there are pleasures, not for a second, but for ever. When we are finally in the full presence of God, when Jesus returns, there will be fullness of joy. Make the goal of your life the return of Jesus Christ and everything that you should be living for in light of his return. What is the answer to this math question? How many of you knew we were going to do math? What is one-fourth plus three-fourths? Thank you. Nobody that I could tell said four-fourths. Oh, he's been... You've heard the heaven event before. Just never... Just don't pay any attention to him. Don't pay any attention to the man behind the curtain. Okay. One-fourth plus three-fourths. The majority of normal people said... One. Okay? Now, even though technically the answer is what? Four-fourths. Now, all joking aside, one of the things that I've studied in my life and gone around and spoken on to Christian school teachers is the integration of math and Bible and how math reflects God. God has rigged our brains in such a way that when we add fractions together, the completion of the fractions leads us to think about the what? The whole. Your kids don't say to you, Mom, buy me another pizza because I ate 12 out of 12 pizzas of the first one. What do they say? Mom, buy me another pizza because I just ate the whole thing. All right? When, when we have all the pieces, the fractional part seems to go and we're overwhelmed with the completion of the thing. Amen? And I'm here to tell you that one day Jesus is coming back. And when Jesus comes back and I go into his presence, the partial and broken and fractured nature of my life and all the things that I have been through, that the Apostle Paul has been through, that you have been through, all of those things will be absorbed and overwhelmed by the whole. That is why I believe the Bible says in Revelation chapter 21 that in the new heaven and the new earth, when the new Jerusalem comes down out of heaven, the Bible says, it doesn't say necessarily that there won't be a sun or a moon or stars, but it says that we'll have no need of the sun or the moon or the stars. Why? 
Because Jesus will what? Be our light. His light will so eclipse all other light that we'll have all the light we need. One day when I go to heaven, what I have fought for, what I have lived for, despite every hardship, despite every difficulty, trying to fix my eyes on what is eternal, that will all come together and Jesus will so eclipse my struggles. Amen? They will all make sense in the wholeness of it. And I want you to be encouraged this morning to have, therefore, the focus that Paul said we should have in light of that hope. Here's what he said in Colossians chapter 3, 1 through 4. He said, since then you have been raised with Christ. Set your hearts on things above where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things above, not on earthly things. For you died and your life is now hidden with Christ in God. And when Christ, who is your life, appears, then you will also appear with him in glory. Now, this is a very uh, wordy section of scripture here. And what I did was I broke it down and I put it into visual format for you. Because basically what Paul is saying is, if you have died with Christ, then you are raised with Christ. Amen? And one day when he appears, you're also going to appear. Now, what does it mean that you have died? Okay, because as far as I can tell, nearly everybody in this room is still alive. Nearly everybody. First service, I wasn't so sure. I thought I saw somebody. But anyway, I think everybody is kind of alive here if, you're, if your heart is beating. All right, so what does it mean that you died then? You're not literally dead. Well, I'm going to show you what this means. Paul kind of explains it, and uh, I don't have this on the PowerPoint, but it's Colossians chapter 2 if you wanted to make note of that and look at it later. But building up to this in Colossians chapter 2, beginning at verse 13, Paul says, When you were dead in your sins and the uncircumcision of your sinful nature, God made you alive with Christ. He forgave us all our sins. When I say that, don't you want to burst into hallelujah? I I was reading that this morning. I was like, thank you, God. Listen, he forgave us all our sins, having canceled the written code with its regulations. He took it away, nailing it to the cross. Do you know that when Jesus was nailed to the cross, something else was nailed there with him? According to the Bible, the debt that I owed. Amen? So let's break this down into visual format and let's see what what Paul is talking about here. The Bible is saying that there was a day when I was dead in my sin. Now I was dead because I was condemned to death by my debt. Now Shelley Prindle on her own is a mean, selfish, rebellious sinner. Amen? Yeah, you're supposed to say amen. It's okay. I still like you. Okay, so I am on my own. I'm condemned by my debt. I owe so much to God because I have so wronged him by my very nature. Not just what I say and but what I do. Who I am, how I think, my selfishness. I am condemned by my debt. I can't pay him back. There's this gigantic IOU and I can't pay for it. Amen? When I grew up over at Calvary Assembly in Irwin... Under Pastor Hart, there was a song that we used to sing all the time. Raise your hand if you... Now, I'm not going to sing it, because I want you to stay for the rest of the message. 
okay? I always say, my biggest fear is that this little thing will turn on while we're still doing the choruses and stuff, and everybody will clear out. Okay, Jeff can sing. For as well as my husband can sing, that's exactly how much I can't, okay? So it's like an inverse operation, you know? Okay, but anyway, so how many of you remember this song? He owed a debt he could not pay. Raise your hand. Now, I would love to burst out into song with this, but I won't. I'm going to say the words to you. He paid a debt he did not owe. I owed a debt I could not pay. I needed someone to wash my sins away. And now I sing a brand new song, Amazing Grace, the whole day long. Christ Jesus paid a debt that I could never pay. So when I was flat on my back and dead in my sin, with a huge IOU to God, Jesus came along and said, you know what, I'm going to become a human, but I am God without sin. And so I can pay the price. Shelly, when I go to the cross, they're not just nailing me to the cross. They're nailing your IOU to God to the cross. Amen? And when Jesus died, every accusation of the devil against my life died with him. Hallelujah. That's what it means that we've been made alive in Christ. Our debt has been nailed to the cross. And I stand right with God because of Jesus. And I want a little sidebar about heaven too that's really exciting. Is Revelation 12:10 is really going to come true someday? Because Satan is the accuser of the brethren. And how many of you ever struggle with guilt even as a Christian? You talk about the partial nature of this life, even though you are forgiven in Christ, how many of you ever struggle with guilt and say, I don't feel like it? When the perfect comes, that's what I can't wait for about heaven. Guilt all erased. Never to come back at you, amen? Because the accuser of the brethren will have finally been cast down. Hallelujah. Now here's the neat thing about this graphic. Paul says, in light of this, he says, look, you died and your life is now hidden with Christ in God. Okay? When God looks at me, he doesn't see Shelley Prindle's righteousness because there is none. When he looks at me, who does he see? Jesus. I've chosen to hide my life in Christ. Okay? So Paul says, Shelley, your life is now hidden with Christ in God. Now here's the interesting thing. How many of you in this room know that Jesus is not acknowledged for who he truly is in this world from people being just they don't care about him to actually being antithetical to him how many of you know that jesus is not recognized as being the king of kings and lord of lords that he is and before we go condemning the world for not acknowledging how many of you know that on a daily basis i don't even recognize him for who he is amen so there's a sense in which in this life, before Jesus comes back, there is a cloud covering who he is. He's not truly known for all the glorious Son of God that he is. Amen? But there's coming a day when he comes back and the Bible says every eye will see him, even those who pierced him. And the Bible says every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. They won't be able to help themselves. If they haven't done it willingly, they will do it because they must, because his true nature will be revealed. Amen? That's a glorious day. But for now, who Jesus is is a little bit veiled. It's somewhat hidden to the world and even at times to us. Amen? 
Now listen. If, if Marty Rogers' life is hidden with Christ in God, and we don't even see Christ for who he truly is, then there's no way that I see Marty Rogers for all the glorious being that she is either. Amen? How many of you have ever felt misunderstood? How many of you have ever felt, if people could only know my heart? How many of you have ever felt you've been misjudged, even by yourself? Amen? Listen. When Christ finally appears, he will be known for all that he is. And the Bible says in Colossians 3, 4, when Christ, who is Janice Swope's life, appears, then she will also appear. That's what it says. When Jesus finally fully appears, who the real you is will finally appear. Praise you, God. And if you are covered in Jesus, every struggle gone, every misunderstanding gone, every wrong motive gone, the real you who deep down inside said, God, I'm a failure, but I love you, will really appear. Amen? Can we look towards that day? And can we look at each other through that lens? Now, here's what Paul said. He said, fix your eyes on what you cannot see. Fix your eyes on this eternal. Fix your eyes on the reality of that day. It's not about this life. The thing that intrigues me about a horizon is it's the dividing line between this earth and things of the heavens. Okay, now, I literally looked at a horizon one day and this thought struck me. When you're looking out at the horizon line... If you drop your eyes just a few degrees below the horizon, think about this, you are looking at things that are stuck to the earth. Amen? You drop your eyes below the horizon line. Oh, yes, you can't even, it's almost imperceptible. I'm going to look straight ahead and I'm going to drop my eyes a few degrees. You could hardly even tell, could you? If you drop your eyes a few degrees below the horizon line, suddenly you're looking at things that are stuck to the earth. Trees and mountains and buildings, things that are stuck to this one little tiny little terrestrial ball in the whole universe. But if you make the conscious choice to lift your eyes just a few degrees above that line, now all of a sudden you're looking at things that are billions and trillions of miles away in this ever-expanding universe. You ever think about that? It would take the average person 90 million lifetimes to walk to an averagely dif- distant star. I calculated that once. So I do in my spare time. So if it would take you 90 million lifetimes walking a 20-minute mile for 80-year lifespan, it would take you 90 million lifetimes to get to the averagely distant star. But if you just lift your eyes a few degrees, you can see one. I believe through a literal horizon line, God is telling us something. People, when you get up in the morning and you brush your teeth and you eat your Cheerios and you get dressed and you get in the car and you do what you do, please, God is saying, lift your spiritual eyes a few degrees above the mundane and live for what lasts forever. Interact with people and love them 
with the attitude of God. Do your job with the attitude of God. Live your life with passion, with meaning. Amen? Now, people who live for things eternal are not people who live like they go in little closets and just read their Bible and pray 24 hours a day and never come out. The people who do the most good for this world are people who are focused on the next world. You with me? Because God said in Genesis 1.28 that what graduates, what, what the goal of God is for you before mankind ever sinned, the first commandment God ever gave to people was rule over this world. Take dominion of it. Build buildings. Build societies. Educate one another. Harness the stuff of this life that I've made with the brain that I've given you. Do stuff with it. Amen? And 2 Timothy chapter 2 and many other places in the Bible say that when we're in heaven, you know what we're going to be doing? We're going to be fulfilling this command that was given to us before we ever sinned. Hallelujah. You're not going to play a harp and sit on a cloud unless that's your cup of tea. You are going to be ruling and reigning and exploring. I personally believe what uh, Mr. John Whitaker of Whitaker Publishing House just died, right, Karen? And one of the things he believed, he said, I feel like I'm standing in a line at Kennywood, and I can't wait to see Jesus, and I can't wait for heaven, and I can't wait to go explore all the stars that I've been studying from down below. I can't prove this from the Bible, but I would say that the biblical precepts teach us that we are going to rule and reign in this world when we get to heaven, including, I believe, I'll be exploring the universe. You'll see me reading books in heaven. You'll see me teaching in heaven. We'll be doing the stuff that God called us to. So I want to tell you, to live with an eternally mind, an eternal mind is this. If you're an architect, then you build and you build well because Jesus is the greatest builder. Amen? Abraham said, I'm looking for a city whose architect and builder is God. If you're going to build, build well and build buildings that reflect the glory of our God who gave you the mind to design it. Amen? Live eternally minded. If God called you to be a teacher, teach well. Because teaching and learning is going to be part of the new heavens and the new earth. If God has called you, uh, ladies, to scrub your dishes and to clean your floor, then you do it well. If you're called to custodial work, you do it well. Because I want to tell you that custodial work is one of the greatest reflections of the heart of God. When we get to heaven, God is going to make all things what? New. I scrub my windows and I clean them. And I scrub my dishes and I try to make my house look like what? New. Because there's something in us that longs for newness. What you do in this world, you do with a new vigor. You do with an eternally minded vision. And you do it for the glory of God. Amen? With the knowledge that you are going to be on the new heavens and the new earth someday. And the partial will be swallowed up by the complete. I want to close with one final example in this visual. Look, in life, you have the horizon line. You can choose to walk through life looking at the earthly and the temporary, or you can choose to fix your eyes on the heavenly and the eternal. I'm going to give you a very tangible example. How many of you have a love-hate relationship with Walmart? (laughs) Me too. Love-hate, okay? I'm a fickle lover of Walmart, but I'm going to give you an example. Listen. This example literally happened in the past month over at our Irwin Walmart. And it's an example of being heavenly minded. Now, if you're like me, you can often go to Walmart and just be a little bit enamored with all the 
business going on, all the long lines, all the people like shoving their carts into you. Why is everybody looking at honey bunches of oats when I am? Can't they be looking at paper towels or milk or something? I get really impatient in a Walmart. People are running over your toes. You know what I'm saying? Now, you can go into Walmart and just be aggravated with the money you're going to have to spend, the people that are getting on your nerves. You can, you can look below the horizon or you can look above. In the past month over here at the new Irwin um, Walmart, I was made aware of a woman, and to protect uh, the anonymous identity of her, we'll call her Sally. Sally went to the Irwin Walmart, true story, on an ordinary afternoon and chose that instead of just being irritated by the whole experience and just doing a mundane task, she said to God, God, open my eyes. Help me to live for what's eternal in Walmart. Okay? It can be done. (laughs) So what happened was she goes into Walmart, and she's over in the fruit section getting close to checking out, and she sees a family, um, actually a mother and three sons. They didn't look like they had a lot of resources from what she could tell, and the oldest of the sons was a, looked about my nephew Jake's age. Maybe he was like eight or nine years old, and then there were two younger ones. They weren't dressed all that well. And um, the oldest of the sons, as they were walking to Walmart, Sally said, almost with tears in his eyes, he wasn't doing it to beg, like to be obnoxious, but he said to his mom, Mom, can you please get us blueberries? I love blueberries, and they're good for you. Can you please get us blueberries? And Sally noticed that the mother was responding to him, no, not to be mean, but she kind of, by what she said, realized that it was because blueberries were $3.49 a package, and strawberries were only $1.59. So the woman picked up a package of strawberries and tried to appease the boy with it, and so she bought one package of strawberries for three boys. And then she went over and she looked for packages, uh, prepackaged oranges and ended up getting grapes and the one package of strawberries. And as they were leaving the fruit section, Sally said the boy was still saying, Mom, can we just please get blueberries? No, I'm sorry, we can't. I can't. They're too expensive. And that is a real hardship for some people. So Sally was walking through Walmart, getting ready to check out, and she looked down in her cart at all the various fruits she bought to be healthy. And the Holy Spirit spoke to her heart, and she knew what she had to do. So she nabbed one of the ladies who was with her and said, Would you do me a favor? Would you take this container of blueberries that I just bought and go find this lady? And she described the lady to her. She's probably back in the milk section by now. I just, God is telling me, give her these blueberries. So the lady went and found her. She realized who it was, and she walked up to the lady and said, Excuse me, um, <laughs> it's an uncomfortable situation, but excuse me, um, I was told that your son wanted blueberries back there. And the, it caught the lady's attention, and she kind of really tuned in, and she said, yeah, but I couldn't get them. You know, like, what do you want? And the lady said, well, somebody wanted me to give these to you. Now imagine the eight- or nine-year-old boy is standing back watching the whole thing unfold. And the mother of the boys looked at the lady and said, well, she started to cry. Started to cry at a package of blueberries. And said, how can I ever thank this person? And the lady said, they don't 
You don't need to. And on an ordinary afternoon in Walmart, a package of blueberries, I believe, from what Sally says, changed somebody's eternity, possibly. I remember when people would help my parents send me to a youth convention because we couldn't afford it. Or when people would give money to help me get blood test strips when we didn't have much. And I know that on an ordinary afternoon, a child can watch something like that unfold and perhaps be saying in their minds, maybe there is a God. Maybe he cares if I eat blueberries or not. All I'm saying to us is, live for what matters and live with the hope that heaven is ahead. Spend your life for Jesus. Look at the Apostle Paul. It is not about your comfort, your entertainment, getting a bigger TV screen for your house, a newer car. It's not about all that business. You know what it's about? I'm going to spend my life, even if it's $3.50 for a package of blueberries, to give it away to Jesus Christ. Amen? Let's live for what matters. Bow your heads with me if you would.